If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Hello. Today I've got Colin Stapleton from the worst comic podcast ever with me as we discuss The Empire Strikes Back. We'll look into the history of the movie, some of the background, talk about the comics, and of course, examine the score for the film right now on Soundtrack Alley. Hello, Colin. It's nice to have you on the show. Hi, Randy. It's great to be on. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Today, we're going to be looking at some great information regarding Empire Strikes Back, and I would say that it's probably the best in the entire series. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, for sure. Uh, I think through the years, there's always been a debate about uh, which one of the movies uh, was best or worst, but it never seems like there's any disagreement that everyone loves Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, and you know, there's so many different interesting things that I've learned as I was researching for the movie and even re-watching the movie and learning that like Irvin Kirshner, the director, mm-hmm. he was he was not a big fan of like special effects. So he tried to keep things as practical effects as he could to make it seem like a more real movie. Yeah, I think uh, I think you know. I mean, you, you look at it now. There's it's always perspective, right? So we're, uh, oh my goodness, uh, thirty plus years uh, past the release of that movie, and uh, there are moments where you look at it and you go, "Oh, that's you know very much a movie that was released thirty years ago." And then uh, you watch different parts of it, and uh, it looks like it could be made today. And so uh, I think outside of just those. Uh, obvious stop motion uh scenes and and not all of them really uh i think the movie really stands and uh up holds up uh um with its special effects and i I still believe that kirshner found a good job of matching what he wanted to see as the vision for the movie and the the special effects uh, portion that uh george wanted oh yeah and, like, one of the interesting things I found that Irvin Kirshner had done, like, the scene where Luke is in the ice cave and he's hanging upside down, mm-hmm. the w- the way they got the effect of him actually getting the lightsaber, 
um, was actually him throwing the lightsaber into the snow. And then, like, they reversed the film to make it seem like he was using the force to grab it. That's really cool. I thought that was, yeah. Yeah, that's I thought a to- it was really cool. Yeah, that's a to- that is really cool. I, I never would have thought that uh, because there's the scene, you know, uh, there's the scene from Star Wars where uh, the Tusken Raider is kind of attacking Luke while Luke is out looking for R2. Um, and there's that scene where you can tell that they've like, taken the the footage of the Tuscan Raider raising his his uh um oh what do they call those things uh his staff. his staff and he's getting ready to attack and then they rewind it and play it back and forth to make it look like his arms are shaking like you could totally tell that but I never would have guessed that uh about Luke's lightsaber in the ice cave uh they did a great job with that I never even considered it yeah um I found that like Carrie Fisher, she was staying in like a box for many of her scenes with Harrison Ford uh, to make up like the difference between their heights. So they made Carrie Fisher seem a little taller than she appeared or than she really was. Um, so that way she wouldn't uh, be as short <laughs> to him because she she was only five one oh, and he wow. was six one. So, I mean, there was a big difference. And yeah. in the movie, you can't see that. Yeah, you have no idea. Uh, to be honest, the only other <clears throat> actor that I've ever heard of them providing uh, any sort of step stool or anything like that um, to just help balance heights and things of that nature is Tom Cruise uh, early yeah. in his career. So that's really interesting that they felt like they needed to do that. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, one of the things I found interesting was that, you know, with filming in Norway, being uh, fenced Norway, and there was this severe uh, snowstorm that hit the hotel where the cast and crew were staying, um, this would have normally halted the filming. But d- the director, which was Irvin Kirshner, I mean, he he showed that the weather conditions were the perfect opportunity to film the scene where Luke wanders through the snow after escaping the Wampa Cave. And so he did this by sending Mark Hamill out into the cold while he and his cameraman stayed in and filmed it from the hotel's front hall. Wow, that is really cool. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, I suppose you have to make do with what you have, right? And if you have a super windy, blowy, snowy day, uh, you probably want to try to take advantage of that. That's that's really cool. Yeah, I thought so too. Because, um, you know, there were a lot of things that were really kind of funny um, in the direction that Irvin Kirshner had with the film because, like, at one point, he was trying to give uh, talking points to Yoda instead of Frank Oz. <laughs> <laughs> where he was actually giving directing to the puppet versus the human. That's yeah, hilarious. Yeah. And I, I found that really funny because it seemed like Yoda was more real to him as, an, you know, he considered him like an actor right, in the film. Right, right. Because he was a puppet. Totally. So. 
Yeah, so, you know, there were a lot of things I, I found that were unique um, with that whole situation. Now, you know, when we look at the planet Hoth, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think it was a good place to have that opening scene? Oh, absolutely. Like, uh, I mean, I think that uh, having, you know, it just really jars you. Um, you know, you're almost caught up in it because it, you know, starts off with uh, them outside and the wind is blowing and everything is obviously just cold. And, like, I really felt like that they did a great job, especially um, in context with against Star Wars that, you know, started off on Tatooine and established, you know, a, a very definite feel for the movie early on. I really felt like that they did uh, the exact same thing with Empire by starting off on Hoth in such a, you know, desolate, remote place. Uh, and so it really set the tone, but then it also automatically focused you in on the character development, what was going on. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, um, and with having things filmed in Norway, a lot of the Echo Base troops were actually Norwegian mountain rescue skiers. And so they were in perfect uh, preparation for those scenes. And even Lucasfilm had made a donation to the Norwegian Red Cross uh, for their contribution oh, wow. to being in the film. That's really cool. Yeah. I, I just, you know, there, there are so many interesting things that I've learned throughout uh, this, you know, learning about the film. And I had, I mean, I had posted on Facebook that, you know, uh, the different scenes that I was watching as I uh, was preparing for recording today. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it's always fun to really look back on some of those icon iconic scenes and really visualize, you know, how, how, uh, well, Irvin Kirshner had directed the film and that George Lucas had very minimal contribution to uh, the whole film process. And I thought that was actually really nice. Yeah, I thought, you know, him turning over control, um, you know, to Irving, I, I felt like that that was most definitely uh, an admittance on, you know, Lucas's part that maybe there was, you know, that wasn't his his strongest uh, asset as a, as a director or a storyteller. But, um, you know, I think that uh, it's still held in line with uh, Lucas's uh, initial early description of Star Wars is that it was a space Western. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, seeing images of uh, Luke and uh, and or Han, you know, uh, it was, you know, the stop motion tauntauns, but... There was an image that you had taken of uh, one of them up on a, on their tauntaun, and the the view is uh, kind of you're down below to the left, and you're looking up um, this snowy hillside, and they're kind of up there. And I thought at that moment when I saw that still shot, like that to me kind of seemed like the equivalent of the cowboy sitting at the edge of the canyon, and you know pulling the reins back and the horse, you know, lifting its front legs up and things like that, uh, just for a, a thematic shot. And, uh, anyway, it, uh, really struck me that there's still so many components of, 
um, this movie in particular that, uh, you know, plays um, with the uh, the old westerns and just some of the, the visuals that go along with it. Uh, but I just felt like that seeing it, at, you know, in the context of Hoth with these alien creatures and things, um, it's not as easy to pick up, but it, it's certainly there and it's... Uh, it certainly, you know, makes for, uh, you know, uh, the the drama and everything that is associated a lot of times with some of those older spaghetti westerns and things. Oh, yeah. And, like, when we talk about things that happened on the planet Hoth and the Imperial AT-AT walkers that, you know, we talk about stop motion and how that was such a big part in how they were getting them to actually walk and to move but when they would fall over they actually filmed it in real time and then used like precision timed mini pyrotechnic charges to get them to actually fall over on cue yeah that uh those ADA scenes um i mean i play the video game uh battlefront uh Mm -hmm. and uh my favorite map to play is doing walker assault and where you're trying to stop it from advancing i mean it was just so amazing to see those things up on the screen just their size because really outside of the star destroyer and the death star um you know we just didn't there, there we hadn't yet been introduced to all of the things that the Empire had in its disposal to fight the rebels. And, you know, you're not even 30 minutes into the movie and they start, you know, talking about, you know, and you start seeing the AT-ATs and, uh, um, like, it was, you know, being 10 years old, like, those things, that imagery just stuck with me, uh, you know, until this day. Uh, those were amazing uh, constructions by the FX crew, um, and the, the filming of it, uh, was amazing. I just, like, I never at any point thought that wasn't real. That couldn't be. Um, I totally bought in. Yeah. Another unique, uh, real, uh, construction that they had done was the entire Millennium Falcon. They had built it life-size, uh, for the first and only time, for Empire Strikes Back. And, um, I mean, in episode one, or episode four, New Hope, <laughs> they had uh, they had used only half the spacecraft, but it measured like 65 feet in diameter and 16 feet high, and then um, with the mandible giving it an overall length of 80 feet. Wow. So that's, that's a big... Big construction project, and it weighed 23 tons. That's amazing. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure that probably there were a lot of uh, questions like, "How are we going to take advantage?" I'm sure there was a lot of work put into to build something like that. That you know, I mean, in all honesty, uh, doesn't really play a huge role early on in the movie. Uh, you know, but it mm-hmm. does set the tone. Like seeing the Falcon in in there and. Um, being able to see Chewie crawling around the top of it, working on it, or Han working on it, definitely gave some perspective, uh, size perspective, and I think probably lent to uh, a sense of realism there in the, the bunker scenes. 
Yeah, and I imagine that when they were filming it in other locations, they probably moved it in pieces, so that way it wouldn't be so right, hard to for sure. move. And uh, so, like, you know, as we progress in thinking about the different parts of the film, how do you think the uh, visualization of filming, like, with George Lucas, he had said that filming in space was a cheat because you could hide the the black lines mm-hmm. and uh, the filming behind it and everything. Right. But then with filming on uh, in Norway, they had to really work harder to make the effects look even more impressive. So that way it wouldn't like there be like there's a matte painting behind uh, the filming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I think all their efforts paid off. I mean, you know, when you're looking at, uh, you know, um, like when Han and uh, Chewie go out to uh, track down the probe droid, uh, you know, they did a masterful job of, you know, using angles and things for the cameras uh, that gave you the sense that the probe droid was floating around uh, without having to, you know, use strings or anything like that. Uh, you know, so just just from the magic of the, the camera and perspective, uh you know, I felt like that a lot of those scenes, they, they pulled off brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I noticed that, you know, like different different uh, parts that were in, say, the special edition, they weren't completely um, clear yet. Like they still, you could still see kind of the black matting line that was around some of the ships. Oh, right. Or some of the different things. But then they went back and they were able to clean it up and it almost seems seamless. Right. Like it actually belonged there. For sure. And I think, you know, I think that they, you know, Lucas had said all along, uh, you know, that he wanted to go back and touch those, uh, those movies up. And, you know, for somebody that, uh, grew up seeing the movies in the theater and then owning them on VHS and their original format and, and everything, uh, you know, at first I was like, Oh, I really wished he wouldn't do that. Um, and then after seeing, um, the special editions and later the Blu-ray versions, uh, uh, you know, I, I totally see where he's coming from. It, it definitely, being able to go back and use, um, you know, special effects and computers that are available today to clean up some of the stuff that wasn't available to them when they filmed the movie, um, you know, for something like Star Wars, I, I totally understand it. And I think that, uh, like I said earlier, if you, you go back and you look at the, the movies today, uh, I think it makes a big difference. I think it, it is what has extended the shelf life of Star Wars and allowed for um, this next generation of uh, creators to be able to use, um, you know, the, the foundations that were built with the, the earlier movies uh, to build new stories moving forward. And, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Lucas went back and, and touched those up so that they didn't seem um, as aged as they are when uh, new eyes or fresh eyes started to view them again. Oh, I agree totally. And like speaking of that, like when they had brought out special edition, there was one additional scene when Darth Vader is leaving Cloud City and he says inform the commander to 
prepare the shuttle for my arrival. And um, that whole scene of him, of his shuttle landing in his Star Destroyer's landing bay, uh-huh. uh, that that was like an unused scene from Star Wars Episode Six: uh, Return of the Jedi. Oh, wow. I did not yeah. know that. Cool. So it was like, you know, it had already been shot. I mean, by the time they went back mm-hmm. and re re-put that into the film. And it made more sense to have that actually in there. So that way you could actually see him going to the shuttle and getting off the shuttle and showing, oh, yeah, he actually went into space, <laughs> and, you know, went across. It wasn't some, you know... It wasn't a Star Trek beaming. Right. It was he was actually taking a shuttle and doing it. So I thought that was unique. Um, totally. So like when you look at the different scenes in the movie, what what really stands out in your mind as to like your favorite scene in Empire? Oh man. Oh, that's so hard to say. Um, you know, one of the things that. Uh, I'm always constantly wrestling with is uh, trying to recall, you know, how I felt about it when I watched it as a 10 year old versus how I've kind of grown to watch it now as an adult. And, uh, you know, there was uh, a point in time where probably um, I, you know, thought that the, uh, the Dagobah scenes were probably my favorite in Empire. Uh, I simply liked the fact that uh, we got introduced to Yoda, and I also felt like that uh, you know there was so much going on there, uh, and seeing Luke struggle um, during his initial training phase, and uh, I don't know those those images really stuck with me. Um, but I guess probably more than anything. Um, uh, the scene in um, Empire that, that sticks with me most, just the the tone of the scene and everything, um, the emotional gravitas that was uh, assigned to it would be the, the moment where uh, Han was getting ready to be frozen in the carbonite chamber. And uh, mm-hmm. just the whole play of the orange smoke and uh, how the, you know, light kind of played off Vader um, the emotional back and forth between Leia and Han and, you know, Chewie becoming distraught and uh, the Ugonauts all running around uh, just doing business as usual to prepare for this. And, <clears throat> like, it was, uh, you know, uh, I think on top of everything else where, you know, you're like, your jaw has continued to hit the floor like every five minutes for the last 20 minutes with, you know, starting with, 3PO getting blasted by the stormtrooper and Mm. Han and Leia and Lando and everybody being brought to the dining room to see, you know, Vader. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things over and over and over again. And then you get to that final, you know, moments, those final moments in the freezing chamber and, uh, man, they were gut wrenching. And then, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, so I'd probably have to say that, uh, those moments there in the carbonite chamber, you know, probably affected me the most. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I mean, it was a very emotional scene. Um, and one thing that really makes it even deeper is 
John Williams music. Mm. Um, just just having that that feeling behind the scene, the the music that it swells and it's like kind of sinister, and there's just this air of dread right. coming upon these characters, and then you get the the love theme of Han and Leia in there, and it's woven so perfectly with uh, John Williams, and he just he brings those themes out so well for even just that one scene. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, being the age that I was when this came out, uh, I was not, you know, in a place where I could appreciate, you know, what music I never, I wasn't mature enough to think, okay, you know, this score is really, you know, setting up this scene uh, in a dramatic sense. Uh, I just knew that the music that I was listening to while watching this was giving me goosebumps. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so, uh, you know, I, to me, uh, the music, John, you know, John Williams music is, uh, as important as any of the characters that are in these movies. Yeah, I would have to agree. Um, one thing I really found interesting was, you know, when we look at the different characters, um, the different actors, like, did you notice that between Star Wars A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back, that Mark Hamill looked different? I, I do know a little bit about that, but uh, I didn't at the time. Uh, again, just youthful eyes letting that all pass by. But uh, do you have the whole story on that? I have some of the story. Okay. I have, I have some of the facts that... You know, he was actually in an accident, like a severe car crash that um, caused him to have to have surgery done. And um, it was just it was a, a long process of him having to go through reconstructive surgery because of this uh, severe car wreck that he was actually in. And it blew my mind because, like, when um, when my wife and I were re-watching the movie, and uh, we were, my wife was saying, why does he look different? Why does his nose look broken? And I said, well, he was in a really bad accident. And, uh, it, it, you know, he survived that car crash. And it was in January 1977 but didn't have any visible scars by the time The Empire Strikes Back was actually filming. So, so yeah, I mean, he had to have reconstructive surgery, and at one point, I think he had to go back and uh, refix a few things, but, um, you know, it just, it, it was really kind of jarring to see that in, in the film, it would seem like he was more seasoned, <laughs> he was a more seasoned Jedi, or he was right. uh, learning about his abilities, and um, it made the film even more real to be able to see that he's not a perfect character. Right. I I totally felt like uh, for years, whether this is true or not, but uh, I totally felt like for years that uh, Kirshner and the, and the team, you know, had the Wampa, uh, you know give him a wampa slap, give Luke a wampa slap in the face, um, 
so that they could kind of explain, you know, some of the some of the damage or some of the changes to his face, um, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, they, you know, uh, had the wampa hit him. And, and like I said, I didn't know this, uh, know the full extent of the story that he had been in that bad of a wreck. And uh, so now it, it, you know, helps cement my uh, made up tale in my head that that really happened. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was uh, one of the things that uh, my wife said, um, specific to that when she saw Empire Strikes Back for the first time was that she thought that they had gotten someone different to play Luke. And it wasn't until oh. he spoke that she was like, oh, oh, I think that's the same guy. <laughs> and uh, so mm-hmm. she she definitely noticed it. But uh, as a young dude myself, uh, I was when I first saw that it did not did not register. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting that um, with Empire Strikes Back or even Star Wars coming out, uh, Mark Hamill had auditioned for another movie back in 1977, a little film called Wizards. (laughs) And uh, in the late 70s, the original title was changed to avoid confusion with Star Wars Uh, episode four and so George Lucas had recommended uh, Ralph Bakshi the writer and director that he would use Mark Hamill and instead um, oh yeah I guess he did use him he used uh, Mark Hamill to uh, voice the character Sean in the uh, animated feature there oh wow that's cool. I just yeah, saw. I, thought... I just saw. It's so weird that you say that. I just saw a post uh, earlier today on Facebook uh, from Mister Is it Bakshi? Bakshi, and yeah. uh, yep. he was just saying that today was the 40th anniversary of Wizards. So that's really interesting. Mm. I did not know that uh, Mark Hamill had a role in that. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, and I mean Mark Hamill. He's an astounding voice actor as well. I mean, he's played the Joker right. as, on the Batman the Animated Series, and he's had uh, several different voice roles in um, some of Hayao Miyazaki's films. Oh, yeah. So, um, I think... Yeah. Uh, oh, which one was it? Um, not Princess Mononoke... Um, but he was in uh, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. He was in that oh, one. Oh, cool! Uh, as a voice, and um, he was also in um, Princess Mononoke, and I think he was in Spirited Away. Um, but he's he's an astounding voice actor as well. Absolutely, uh, you know. I mean, uh, his career. Uh, he has done a great job of. You know, being connected to the fans, um, staying connected to the fans, and then managing his career in a way that has allowed him to, you know, stay relevant as a pop star. Um, But, you know, it didn't hurt that his roles all stayed within what I would, you know, loosely coin the geek community. Um, Mm. You know, but, uh, you know, he he is an an amazing uh, creator and... uh, when you hear his work on Batman the Animated Series or even when um, he would play, uh, oh gosh, 
I'm trying to remember his uh, character's name. I think it's the trickster in the yes. 90s version of the two. And then he came back. Right, exactly. And uh, didn't it really didn't seem like he missed a beat. And, uh, no. and so I, I really just, you know, and this was all leading up, of course, to The Force Awakens, which didn't really give him any acting uh, time other than standing on that beautiful mountain over the ocean and staring at, uh, <laughs> at Ray. But, uh, um, you know, he's done a phenomenal job. I think, uh, you know, he seems to be uh, a person that, uh, you know, he's a human, and I'm sure he's got, you know, regrets and has made mistakes and things like that. But he seems to be a very genuine likable person that's interested in you know keeping the the star wars name or the star wars brand uh, uh clean and and accessible by all and yeah I, I think i'm a huge mark hamill fan yeah and i i mean i am too and uh you know some of the the interesting uh rumors of how they tried to keep the script uh, pretty silent uh, for um, the big reveal of uh, Darth Vader saying that uh, I am your hmm. father. And, um, you know, it it just totally, you know, blows people away that they kept it so secret. Like George Lucas, he was so determined that um, he made sure that only five people actually knew about the ending before the film was released. And did you know that Leah Brackett, who um, who was a famous author back in the early or late 70s, and I mean early 70s probably too, uh, but she actually penned the first draft of The Empire Strikes Back? No, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah, and so George Lucas had come up with the idea in his second draft after Leah Brackett died because she she died of cancer and um Irvin Kershner he knew about it of course right and then writer writer Lawrence Kasdan uh-huh and Mar Mark Hamill was informed shortly before the shooting of this scene and then James Earl Jones of course uh during the recording sessions he believed that Vader was actually lying. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. What an, I mean, yeah, I will admit, uh, you know, you asked me my favorite scene. I think that that's a great scene. Uh, I will admit mm -hmm. that my jaw didn't drop. And I loved Luke. I totally identified with Luke, my lifelong friend uh, that I've literally known since uh, I was a baby, uh, Rodney Galindo. Uh, whenever we got together, he would always be Han and I would always be Luke because uh, he had brown hair and I had blonde hair. And uh, mm -hmm. But I, uh, for whatever reason, uh, like I, that moment that Vader revealed himself to be Luke's father uh, was not as emotionally jarring to me as the as the carbonite freezing scene was. But I, I totally think that, uh, you know, in a, if you put you know, great moments in cinematic history side by side. Uh, I think that moment probably sits easily within the top 10. Yeah, it's one of the most iconic moments in the film ever, I think, to exist uh, because it was such a, a 
jarring uh, explanation. And <laughs> what I found interesting as I was researching the facts about Leah Brackett's first draft of the script, um, that uh, it contained the revelation of Luke's sister, and her exist her existence was disclosed by the ghost of Anakin Skywalker in her script. And uh, Anakin was explaining that it was he, not Obi-Wan, that separated the twins at birth to protect them from Darth Vader. And then <laughs> they, re- they had renamed, uh, well, Leah Brackett had l- renamed Leia to be Neelith. And she also went under, went, underwent uh, Jedi training. Uh, in another part of the galaxy so she could join forces uh, with Luke to defeat the Sith. And the concept, of course, was dropped in the second draft along with the appearance of Anakin Skywalker, and it was replaced with uh, Obi-Wan and Yoda, which I think was a much better way of having uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi come back and really be that uh, mentor figure for Luke to see that this was, you know, a dangerous time for him and he needed to be careful. Yeah, I I definitely agree. I mean, uh, you know, so many things go through my head when you talk about, like, all of the possibilities of Leia and, and everything. I will admit, as a uh, 10-year-old boy, when uh, Luke leaves Dagobah uh, to go to Cloud City and the ghost of Obi-Wan is talking to Yoda... Uh, and Yoda mentions that, you know, um, that there's another, you know, there's another Skywalker. Yeah, or I, I think, no, he doesn't say there's another Skywalker. He just says there's another. And uh, mm-hmm. as a 10-year-old... And that's after he left. That's right, exactly. And, uh, you know, as a 10-year-old boy, I did not hold any, um, you know, respect for women or anything like I just didn't know and so of course I always thought that they were automatically talking about Han uh that he would be the uh, the another person that they could train or that he might also be a Jedi and so uh you know as the movies you know started to come out and we understood more about the relationship between Luke and Leia and then when you see the emotional scene in uh, episode three where you know ben obi-wan takes luke to uncle owen and and everything um you know and leia goes with bail organa you know i just i really always felt you know as i started to get older uh just as a human uh that i really wished that they had had an opportunity to develop leia's character to enable her to be able to take advantage of the force so that we could see that. And, uh, you know, I, when the force awakens came out, um, I, uh, you know, I was really thrilled to see Carrie Fisher be a part of it. Uh, and what I really hoped, uh, you know, was, as we watched the movie and you started to learn that she and Han weren't together and, you know, that, uh, uh, Kylo Ren was, you know, uh, her son with Han and he had turned and, you know, just all of this really just immense depressing, um, 
you know, the a series of really bad life events, and Leia, you know, continues to be, uh, you know, a, a general in the uh, army and leads, you know, these tactical uh, fights and things like that. And there's just so much story that I feel like uh, uh, is available to that character. And then, you know, losing Carrie uh, to her heart attack and everything, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like that we've lost a little bit of that window uh, where we could have learned a little more about, you know, what she's been up to uh, all these years, uh, not being with Han and leading the rebellion and things and becoming a general. So anyway, I, uh, I'm with you, I, but I, I definitely feel like that, uh, um, you know, the, the writers of the current, um, stewards of the franchise, they, they have definitely got their work cut out now that uh, Carrie has passed away to, you know, and hopefully they'll, they'll honor her. I know all her, I guess my understanding is all her filming for episode eight had been completed. Um, yeah, it has. And that the, they were just now, now they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with that as they prepare then, you know, for episode nine. Um, because I think I read that, uh, there was an underlying assumption that she would primarily be, uh, the lead, uh, from the original threesome in that episode nine, that a lot of the story would revolve around her. So, anyway. Yeah, that. I mean, it takes a drastic turn when someone dies in real life. You know. Oh, for sure. So, Especially when you're talking um, about building a franchise like this. Uh, you know, uh, how many times you know has uh, Harrison Ford crashed an airplane? You know, I'm sure yeah. every time he goes up, you know, everyone's holding their collective breath that he is able to land again. But anyway, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's a big part of it is keeping, you know, the original three together and as li alive as long as possible. Yeah, and, you know, thinking of that as a good segue, um, as you are a frequent participant in the worst comic podcast hmm. ever uh you are familiar with the fact that they made comics regarding the empire strikes back um how do you think the comic adaption works for the movie well so uh i love the comics um they are so different uh you know there there were two different kinds of comics that were produced um around the movies uh, primarily there were um these oversized special editions which were self-contained uh treasury edition volumes um and it was pretty close to a scene for scene retelling of the movie um and then uh, there were the monthly comics that were published um, as a part of the Star Wars series. And uh, the challenges that Marvel, who owned the property rights to uh, publish those books with those uh, characters, the challenge that they had was, was that uh, for the ongoing Star Wars series, they, they couldn't do anything with the main characters from the movies that might change continuity or uh, retcon, uh, you know, their origin or anything like that. And so Marvel's writers were uh, 
constantly challenged to come up with uh, stories that were technically outside of the Star Wars universe. Now, when Empire Strikes Back came out, uh, they then what they did is is the couple issues leading up to when Empire came out, they started you know giving the writers permission to set the scenes in the comics so that they could release an, an empire book an empire issue yeah. and uh and so um you know the the comics were you know it's it's crazy because out you know you have to go back i mean it makes me sound you know so old but <laughs> you have to go back to 1980 1981 1982 and the only way that you could satisfy your geek for anything like this um you know was to get these books that were written and the comics that were created and stuff like that because you couldn't go out and just download empire strikes back and watch it a bajillion times you you didn't have access to your favorite movie and so the comics were like this literally were like this opportunity to dip your toe back into the pool um and it was enough to satisfy like you know oh i wish it was this or i wish it was just all the stories were adjacent enough that uh you could kind of as a 11 year old and 12 year old uh make the logical leap that these were all occurring in the same universe and the same timeline and things of that nature and so uh so for us uh you know the the comics were were amazing you know like anything else uh i mean it's a property and there's a business side to it and uh the the um uh star wars series the first star wars series ended i think uh around issue 146 or 147 something like that and uh and you know at that point like there were all kinds of made up characters there was a giant green space bunny named Jackson that was running around with <laughs> them and um and so you know uh it had kind of run its course but uh but it was amazing and and the comics definitely allowed you to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of everything and allowed you to just like you know once a month go back and uh you know, kind of relive it all over. But, um, you know, I flipped those uh, Treasury Edition self-contained graphic novels. Uh, that's what we'd call it today. They were Treasury Edition books back then. But uh, it was just amazing. Like, it was the only way that you could relive uh, the movie um, uh, when you, you know, didn't have availability to get to the theater. And, uh, you know, and, and it's... Uh, I was mentioning to you before we uh, started recording that uh, I had had the double LP um, Mm -hmm. uh, album set, the soundtrack set from the movie, and there was a booklet that was included in it, and it had still shots from the movie. And, Mm -hmm. uh, man, I can... I clearly remember just sitting on my bed flipping those pages back and forth you know looking at the back cover of the the album that had uh han and leia and that uh iconic gone with the wind pose where he's got you oh, know yeah. getting ready to kiss her and um you know and it, and one thing go ahead 
one thing for me is that when I was young, uh, they had the record uh, along with the story. Oh, right. So... So I had that. Yeah. And I would I would play that record over and over and over again and I would always flip the pages when R2D2 would do his little beep when uh-huh. it would play on the record and I would play it over and over again cuz I always loved looking at the pictures because I didn't have, you know, you couldn't get the movie. Right. So you had to go with other means and as we talked about with the comics and recently i picked up the hardcover edition of the empire strikes back um that was the original comic but they reprinted it and made it a really nice uh hardcover edition and oh it's just fabulous and uh you know it just really gives us this iconic feel of the movie and what i'd like to do is you know we're here because we're appreciating not only the movie, but we're appreciating the soundtrack of Empire Strikes Back and having John Williams do this music. So, first of all, I'd like to be able to get into some of these cues. So, uh, first of all, I'd like to have us listen to the opening roll and then the Ice Planet Hoth. And so, you know, when we think about this, this gives us kind of a cold feeling. Uh, However, with the the music, it gives us these wonderful flutes, and you get the woodwind instruments along with these glorious strings in the background. Uh, What are your feelings in regard to the music when you think about the world of Hoth? Wow. Um, Well, I mean, I think that, uh, uh, you know, John Williams... I mean, he's obviously a master. I mean, I'm so grateful and thankful that you selected Empire for us to talk about tonight uh, because it's so easy to just heap praise on Williams uh, because I really feel like that um, he alone, as the composer for this music, uh, he really does an amazing job of transporting you uh, to these places. Um through the use of just his uh his gifts uh you know obviously there's a big point to be made about you know uh what you talked about earlier where Kirshner sent uh Mark Hamill you know straight out the front door in the middle of a blowing gale uh so that he could get this great imagery but you know uh if you don't put the crescendoing piccolos and uh like you described the uh the underlying sense of dread and isolation uh, that comes from being on a planet of ice and snow. Uh, I don't think that things, I don't think it seems as uh, threatening uh, or harrowing. Mm. And so uh, I think that uh, Williams setting the tone, you know, with that uh, musical style to unveil Hoth before us was uh, masterful. Yeah, I would agree. So now we can play the cue, the main title, and the ice planet Hoth.
So next, I've got us taking a step forward to the Battle of Hoth. Now, I really love this cue. Um, it's 14 minutes long, but there's some of the best subtle cues in this one piece of music. You get your first taste of the Imperial Walkers as you get it with the deep drums and the as they pound through the snow and head to destroy the rebel base. Um, what do you think about this cue? Yeah, I'm uh, in total agreement with you. Uh, the The way they use the bass drums and, you know, just to emphasize the giant, you know, heavy steps of the AT-ATs, uh, like it's, uh, it, it definitely it makes you feel like uh, there is, you know, something ominous coming your way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so now let's play the Battle of Hoth.
So next, Colin, I would like to play this fabulous action cue that really gives us 
the benefit of the best action cue in the Star Wars saga. You get these great horns and great drums with the percussions intermixed with it. And the thing I love about this cue, which it is the asteroid field, uh, is the simplicity of it. There's not a lot of busy instruments that are found in this cue, but it gives us these loud horns and epic, like, proportion of build, and uh, it gives you this sense of excitement. Um, what do you think about it? Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that, um, now, I have not done the research on this, but uh, as I recall, uh, I feel like that Williams either changes time signatures or uh, the the way the music is constructed uh, is very unusual and almost, uh, it's like frenetic or maybe chaotic uh like there mm-hmm. seems to be uh a definite beat and tempo to it but the way things happen it's like you're in an asteroid belt like there's uh you know a lot of unknowns you're not sure what's happening and so uh then there's instant collisions and things like that and so i think that that part of the music totally captures that moment mm-hmm I would have to agree. So um, it's been mentioned before on my show that for Eric Woods, this is his all-time favorite cue of action. Like John Williams' action cue of the asteroid field is his number one favorite. And so this actual cue does go out to Eric Woods (laughs) because... I appreciate his show and, you know, we're talking about one of the best Star Wars movies that existed. Right. And um, so now let's play that.
So the last cue that I want to play is a combination of three separate parts of the movie. You know, you get uh, Yoda's theme, and then we'll be having the Carbon Freeze, Vader's Trap, and the departure of Boba Fett, and then the rescue from Cloud City and Hyperspace. Now, with these large pieces of music that are included in the movie, uh, what do you find when listening to the music along with the movie? Does it make it seem more tense, or does it help with the development of the story? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the, the entire movie, you know, is so dark and so foreboding and, uh, you know, it's, it's part of the, the, uh, the hero's journey where everything just totally gets turned upside down. And, uh, I think that John Williams crafted a soundtrack that from beginning to end makes you feel uncomfortable. Like, I feel mm -hmm. like that even during the moments of heroism um, where, you know, hey, you know, there's a couple good things that are happening, the, those moments are just overshadowed, eclipsed by this constant feeling that you're just not, something's just not right. And, uh, <clears throat> and I just feel like that uh, Williams did a great job of... Uh, not overplaying his hand when there were a few bright moments and allowing just the the general um you know horribleness of all of these different situations to just kind of settle in oh i agree um i mean this is by far one of the best movies for me like it when i was little this was my sick movie <laughs> Like when I when I was sick, I would put this videotape in, and I mean I only had the videotapes for the longest time, right? And so I would play it and play it and play it for sure. <laughs> so it it was definitely my favorite movie, and it probably is one of my top five movies of all time. Uh, so you know. It really gives me the sense that with John Williams' music, it really makes the music even a character in the film. Absolutely. So I've really enjoyed having you on the show this evening. Um, it... Of the guests of the worst comic podcast ever, I've only gotten to have Jerry and yourself, and hopefully... I can get John Holloway. On oh yeah, we'll definitely for the Return of the Jedi. Sure, that would be great. We'll definitely uh, make that happen. I am uh, so grateful that you invited me uh, to be a part of your show, Randy. I really love it. Uh, I love that this is your geek and you do a deep dive on it, and it makes for a great show. I also just really quickly wanted to mention um, that one of the reasons why I specifically think that the soundtrack to The Empire Strikes Back uh, is quite possibly one of the most influential soundtracks uh, in our popular culture in, in a lot of different areas is that uh, we were introduced to Darth Vader's theme, uh, mm -hmm. a.k.a. the Imperial March, uh, yeah. on this album. And, you know, I... Uh, 
I see high school bands today, college bands today that play Darth Vader's theme. Uh, my kids, uh, whenever something <laughs> horrible is going to happen, uh, they, you know, riff off this uh, horrible but super cute and awesome version of Darth Vader's theme uh, to create a, you know, a foreboding moment. But uh, <laughs> that particular um, song you know, I think has permeated so much of our culture, like Star Wars has in general. But uh, mm. I, I do not know, probably maybe outside of the initial uh, Star Wars main theme, uh, I don't know any other song that I see people all instantly recognize as much as I do Darth Vader's theme or the Imperial March. Yeah, I would have to agree. It is so influential, even in the world of film and TV. Um, uh, I mean, Star Wars in general has been so interposed with so much pop culture that it's found its way into the most modern TV shows. And you still get Star Wars references in several TV shows and movies and everything because everybody knows what star wars is so yep. having your knowledge having your knowledge about uh some of these uh events with star wars and even the comic industry and i'd like to sometime in the future have you again on the show that would be great oh i would um, love yeah i would definitely love to return uh this has been uh so much fun it's just like sitting down with a friend and uh talking about star wars and how much we love it and everything so uh yeah it's been a great time randy uh, i really appreciate you inviting me i uh, can't wait to return yeah so where can people actually find you okay well uh so the safest place would be to find me uh with jerry and john at the worst comic podcast ever uh that uh we have a uh website worstcomicpodcastever.com you can find us on facebook twitter uh instagram and pinterest um, you can send us an email at worstcomicpodcastever at gmail.com uh, or uh, just send us a message through any of the other social media sites uh, we love meeting new people uh, we love sharing our geek with others and hearing about uh, everybody else's geek too. So uh, drop us a line. We, we love to talk about all things pop culture, especially around superheroes and comics, and would love to hear from you. Yeah, and I always enjoy listening to your show. And, I mean, I don't get a chance to actually tell you guys too often that you guys do an amazing show and your, uh, your professionalism. Uh, regarding the comic industry and even the uh, the facts that you bring out regarding movies or uh, TV shows. You're very professional about it, even in interviewing uh, celebrities. It's just astounding how uh, professional you guys are uh, able to bring out the, qu the questions that you have uh, for these different celebrities. And I mean, I've only had one interview interview on my show and uh, that was a real privilege. Yeah, it was great, uh, Randy. And, and I will tell you, uh, you know, John and Jerry and I, uh, it's super easy 
to do podcasts uh, with an ensemble crew. I think what you do, you know, especially when you're one-on-one, especially with guests who are not 30 years your friend, uh, you do a great mm-hmm. job. You create a warm atmosphere, and uh, it's very inviting, and it allows people, you know, uh, Eric and, and Jerry, uh, you know, seemed very at, at home around you. And yeah, we're, we're big fans of, of you and your podcast and think it's a, a great niche that you've carved out. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. So, um, so to end out the show, um, you can find me at soundtrackalley.net. Um, I've created a new email address for specific reasons for the podcast itself, and it's found at soundtrackalley at yahoo.com. For all my listeners, you can uh, go to that uh, email and email me your questions or if you want to even get in on the show. Um, You can listen to my show on iTunes at soundtrackalley as well as soundtrackalley.podbean.com. And so that'll be it for today. And again, um, I want to thank you for being on the show, Colin. Yeah, it was my pleasure, Randy. No problem at all. Yeah, and so now we'll play these last cues. And I will see you all next time. And happy listening. May the force be with you.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take some time to review my podcast on iTunes and also listen to it on Podbean. And if you leave a review or rating on there, it'll help us get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.